Welcome to the STPCon Spring 2014 session recordings. We're going to talk a little bit about the schools of testing. And I don't know how many of you have been following the debates out there, but we thought it would be interesting to bring a couple of the gentlemen that have been at the heart of the debate to come here, have a, have a conversation about their points of view, do a little point, counterpoint, and then we're going to have a little bit of audience participation as part of that. So I'm going to be out there when they kind of lay the foundation of their arguments and go back and forth, and I'll be close by, so if I have to wrestle them to the ground, I will. And I'm looking for a couple of the big guys that can help me out, because these guys could probably take me. But we, we, I'll be out there with a microphone. So I think we're going to have a good time here enjoying this debate and uh, interacting. We thought it would be a nice way to interact. So I'm going to invite up onto the stage first uh, Rex Black. Rex, come on up. Give Rex a hand. He's the president of RBCS. He's got a popular book, Managing the Testing Process, has sold over 100,000 copies. And he has 11 other books, and he's a great all-around guy. I sat through his risk-based testing last week and his Agile Tester. Uh, he's introducing the Agile Testing Certification coming up, and he's a great guy, and he really a great trainer. I'd like to also welcome up to the stage Mr. Kem Kaner. Another, another great guy, he's a JD, PhD. He's the professor of software engineering at Florida Institute of Technology. He's the author also of several books, including Lessons Learned in Software Testing and the D Domain Testing Workbook. He's also a Software Test Luminary Award winner, and we appreciate that. And I am going to hand over the stage to them. They've agreed on the, on the rules of engagement. They are a little bit close for my comfort. <laughs> Anybody watch the arm wrestling? I think there may be a little bit of that going back and forth. But I think Rex is, uh, they've agreed that Rex is going to open it up and then Kem's going to uh, discuss and then they're going to go back and forth and then we'll engage you. Guys, take it away, Rex. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Uh, so, anybody know who this fellow is? Anyone? Sun Tzu. Yeah, Sun Tzu. So Sun Tzu is the great uh, Chinese military strategist. Uh, wrote a somewhat famous book on military strategy, Art of War. Uh, and you might go, well, what does this guy have to do with software testing? Well, what it has to do with is that my, my basic position here is that there are no schools of testing, that they don't exist that what, what actually exists are strategies, and that what we need to be as test professionals is like that guy. You notice that he's saying up there, he's giving you advice on if you're in this situation with respect to your enemy, then do this. But if you're in this other situation with respect to your enemy, then do this. In other words, what you do depends on your situation. The strategy that you choose depends on your situation. So, what's wrong with this concept of schools? 
Well, I think if you look at the, uh, the, the founding text here that Cam wrote with uh, James Bach and Brett Petticord, it's, you know, there's some good stuff in it. There's the seven principles of context-driven testing at the end, which, you know, I think it's, it's for the most part good stuff. I think a lot of it is common sense, but as Mark Twain said about common sense, the problem with common sense is it's not always so common. So it doesn't hurt to say things that, that need to be said, even if we should all know them. But, okay, so there's some general good ideas there. But what about the actual results of this? What has context... Am I, am I de-miked? I'm miked again. It just miked again. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm miking in and out here. <laughs> but what has context-driven testing actually brought for us? Well, I would say for the most part, um, more heat than light. It has not been an illuminating uh, concept uh, as a whole. So I have a number of, of complaints here. Um, in the papers that you'll find on the internet, probably most, the most notable one would be Brett Petticord's uh, paper on the uh, schools of testing. Uh, there are three other schools besides context-driven testing defined. And then later, there was an addition made to that to add another one for agile testing. Um, you will, in my experience, not find anybody claiming membership in any of these other schools. So if this is such a useful way of organizing our thinking about how we do testing, how come nobody else is adopting it? The only people that talk about schools of testing are people who put themselves in the context-driven school. Now, interestingly enough, if you say context-driven, you notice that the first slide, Sun Tzu, pretty context-driven stuff there, right? If you're in this situation, do this. If you're in that situation, do that. So one would expect that that would be the kind of thing that you would hear from people who are luminaries in context-driven school. Now, leaving aside Cam here, I think if you go out onto, say, Twitter and follow some of the folks who are self-proclaimed context-driven testers and look at some of what they, they say on Twitter about testing, that's going to be about the most prescriptive stuff that you find about testing on Twitter. Don't ever do this. This is horrible. This doesn't work. Categorical statements about what to do and what not to do which isn't terribly context-driven. So there's kind of an irony there is that the people who make pronouncements on Twitter that are the least context-driven things you're ever going to find are tend to be mostly people who proclaim themselves as context-driven. So perhaps they're not very clear on the concept there. Um, now, prescriptive pronouncements are fine because prescriptive pronouncements can be the, the basis of a good debate, and I've been through a few good debates on Twitter. Unfortunately, a lot of times what happens if you've followed any of these debates on Twitter is that they aren't actually good debates. They devolve very quickly into shouting matches, and there's some amazingly rude stuff uh, that gets thrown out there. Not particularly helpful. Okay, now maybe it's funny. It can be amusing, I suppose, if, if your sense of humor runs that kind of way, but are we really learning anything about how to do better testing and how to be better test professionals by trading uh, character assassination and other kinds of insults on a public forum like Twitter 
or does it just make us look silly and unprofessional? Right? That would be my position on it. I'm all for a good debate. Happy to have one right here, right now. Uh, but I've got basic rules of it. You know, I've been around too long. I'm just too old to put up with a bunch of character assassination and rudeness. If I wanted that kind of thing, I could teleport myself back into high school, I suppose, and relive that all over again. But, you know, I also have two teenage daughters, so anytime I want that vicariously, I can always just, you know, walk into the bedroom and just fill up a big cup of snark and, you know, off I go. I don't need to go out on Twitter and get blasted with that stuff. And unfortunately, that's, that's a lot of what it's about. And as I said, it's just more heat than light, right? It's not really illuminating things. Um, I also think another, another problem I have with it is that, that there is, there, there's a feeling of orthodoxy about it. And this is just what I get, again, from listening to this stuff bounce around on Twitter. Like, um, you know, the seven principles that I mentioned there at the top found at the end of Lessons Learned Software Testing. It's funny, if you, if you remember those seven principles and you go into a presentation by somebody who's a self-proclaimed context-driven test person, it, it, all, it almost ought to be like a drinking game, you know, when they cite one of the principles. And they'll cite it literally. I've been in presentations like that. And it's almost like you, have, you should have to take a shot every time they you know, say one of the principles verbatim, you know. So it's, it's orthodoxy. And so that bothers me, too, because we're not at a point where we can have orthodoxies. We're still at a point where we're trying to figure out what this profession's all about and what we should be doing, what is good professional testing, and we don't need orthodoxies for that. We need debate. So my suggestion here is that we just set aside the whole idea of schools and say, nope, there's just a lot of different strategies and we should pick the appropriate strategy for the appropriate situation that we're in and uh, accept that different strategies work in different situations. And rather than demonize people whose preferred strategy is maybe different than our preferred strategy, that we engage uh, again and move towards that, that type of engagement. Interestingly enough, if you look back at 2000 or so, when um, lessons learned in software testing was being written. That was about 2000, right? 2000, 2001. At that point in time, believe it or not, I actually was, was uh, relatively close professionally to a number of people who are now context-driven testers um, and still am close professionally to some of them, but others through this schism that's been created uh, would uh, probably not have anything civilized to say about me. And I think that that's, that's unfortunate if we can get back to thinking about different strategies that we can choose and having a uh, civilized debate that way, then uh, uh, I'm all for it. So that's my opening pitch. Kim? Cool. Kim? So I'm always incredibly nervous at the start of something like this. I have some notes, and uh, <laughs> I don't talk by sitting down. It's just not who I am. Um, I. Uh, I arrived at university in 1970 uh, during a period of huge social unrest. One of the uh, pieces of unrest in terms of um, what I was studying involved Tom Kuhn's <coughs> book published Excuse in 1962 me. about uh, the structure of the scientific enterprise. He was writing mainly about the sciences, chemistry and physics, 
people talk today as if he was writing about the social sciences, but he was talking about the hard sciences and saying that um, the, uh, everything about those fields was heavily influenced by the social dynamics of the field. The organizing principles of the field, the, the structures of uh, how they thought about things were heavily influenced by the interactions of uh, groups of folks doing science and um, uh, their interactions really defined the ways that the field progressed. By 1970, this had become part of the mainstream of scientific discussion, and I ran into it many times. Uh, as an undergraduate, I studied mainly mathematics and philosophy. In uh, philosophy, most of my courses were in Indian philosophy, where I learned that uh, appearances are enormously deceiving, and what was left was primarily a study of Kant and Hegel, uh, who talked very much about the progress and evolution of uh, ideas in terms of uh, a, a, a dynamic of opposition. You'd have folks who advocated for well-organized views. The views would largely grind against each other for a while until finally a third way would evolve. And um, again, this, this notion that uh, intellectual progress comes through uh, the, uh, the interaction of the people in the enterprise. It's not a simple linear model, which had been the traditional way of talking about science. It's not an impersonal model. Uh, like the notions of strategy. Strategies are there, but they're performed and advocated by people. So, um, schools of thought, as I studied them back then, were uh, the hosts for this dialectic. They were the places that people who disagreed basically formed their views and espoused them and, um, uh, and worked on what was going to become the next thing. In 1974, I took a two-semester course with uh, uh, Kurt Danziger on theories of human nature. Danziger eventually became famous for writing books on the social psychology of the history of science, uh, reinterpreting much of uh, how people did experimental psychology in terms of the social dynamics of the field, rather than in terms of um, uh, uh, methodologies that, that people now get taught were always accepted as the right way to do things. He walks through and traces how some of these things evolved, and you look and you go, wow, that was really a human creation, uh, subject to an enormous amount of uh, interpersonal debate. Reading, um, uh, constructing the subject, preparing for this, I, uh, I came to realize again how much my thinking owed to that 1974 course with Danziger. Um, and, uh, and the perspective that, um, Scientists engage in what they do uh, uh, through disagreements, through uh, marketing of their ideas, through propaganda, through uh, uh, interpersonal conflicts. They pay enormous amounts of attention to uh, what work is fundable, what work is sellable. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's remarkable looking inside the human realities of the business as it is, I think, in software testing. And uh, then I went to graduate school. I, I went to a school that was famous for experimental psychology, McMaster University in Canada. We had uh, several of the, the leading activists in several schools that were well-known and, and uh, intensely competing. It was a privilege. I could read about the conflicts between these guys in textbooks and then watch them face-to-face, -face. Uh, some of them in the school and others who would come and visit. Um, one of the, the things that was very noticeable 
through the seven years that I was at McMaster was the collegiality of these folks. There, there was an enormous amount of room to learn through disagreement, and there was a lot of civility in the disagreement that made it possible for us to learn. Um, so, coming from that background, it was really no surprise that I came to Silicon Valley, finally in 1983, very well primed to, uh, to notice the deep disagreements that existed then in the field. The idea that the schism is new is hilarious to me. Uh, the, uh, to notice the interpersonal fault lines that existed and to kind of keep track of them as they, uh, as they evolved. And uh, to notice segregations of groups of folks as they advocated for their points of view. Um, now, Rex is grumpy about how he's being treated by um, some colleagues that I think are uh, a little too exuberant about some things. Um, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, there's a lot of writing when, when people talk about the social psychology of science, about this, this um, dimension that runs from uh, um, stagnation on the one side, where everybody pretends to agree and disagreement is suppressed, out through fragmentation on the other side where nobody can talk to each other. And, um, and there's this sense that progress happens somewhere in the middle. Um, this, is, this is from Krantz's book on the history of schools of psychology. It's, it's a wonderful slide. He takes a two-year debate. This is fast, but it was you know, relative to how these things go. Uh, but this was um, uh, a famous clash between two schools. And you see in 1895 that these guys started out talking um, theory and data, and by the end of 1896, they were screaming about each other's mother. Uh, seriously. It was, um, uh, th there was, there was no longer space in that discussion for constructive engagement. And uh, this is, this is, um, what we're talking about when we're talking about extreme fragmentation. There's certainly some of that going on, and um, I find it just as annoying as Rex does because there's no progress that comes from this. And the whole point to me of having opposition, uh, uh, discussed opposition, is uh, neither of us is right. There, there will always be a better next way. Uh, it would be nice to be able to, to make, take some steps toward finding it. So, um, I think in terms of uh, points of view, there are disagreements in the field when I read books published by um, folks who are training for ISTQB, for example, and when I read the IEEE standards, I, I see uh, many kinds of disagreements between um, my views and the views of many people I think of as uh, having similar views, and um, and other folks. They're basic disagreements. We have disagreements about what's good practice. We have disagreements about what a credential means. We have fundamental disagreements about what the nature of effective instruction is. How do you teach this stuff? What are the best examples? These, these are um, uh, deep disagreements. That doesn't mean you have to be nasty to each other about them. I've seen several other cases in other fields where people have disagreements every bit as deep and uh, much more long-lasting, but they can talk about them. But we have them, and we've had them for a long time. Um, 
the process for resolving disagreements that I ran into in 1984 was pretty simple. I could try to join an IEEE standards committee as I did in 1984 and was told to go away, kid, you bother me. Um, uh, throughout the standards process, which I got involved in or tried to get involved in for the next 15 years, what I learned was that nothing I would ever say would have enough political power behind it to make any significant difference in anything that I worked on. People were going to espouse what I think of as a traditional way of doing testing and tell me that I'm an isolated person who has a strange point of view. Now that strange point of view these days is called agile. And uh, as, as that group, which I think of as a school, has uh, evolved, cohered, protested, read the stuff in 1999, 2000, 2001, um, uh, they had an influence together that none of us could have alone. So um, as you have folks who, uh, Capers Jones several times talks about how no one will adopt metrics. Very few companies have organized metrics programs. And, uh, and then he talks about people engaging in malpractice for not doing measurement or for not doing measurement the way he, that he approves. I look at it a different way. From my consulting experience, I met executive after executive who'd engaged in these measurement programs, found out how much measurement dysfunction had been caused, and said, we're never going to do something like that again. We're going to have to have a better rationale for imposing that cost on the organization. The, one way to deal with that is to listen to the failures and try to adapt. Another way is to try to create standards that legislate, to become an expert witness who says if they don't do this, then they're negligent, to force on a field the things that it won't naturally do. Many of the standards that I see uh, take things that are not widely done and say these are the best practices that must be done. Generally, they're not done for good reason. And uh, imposing is the last resort of people who don't have anything better to offer. You can say that anyone who opposes those is schismatic. But again, this, is, this has been a, a set of opposition since the early 1970s. It just keeps playing out. So the standards process, for example, is very heavily politicized. As somebody interested in the social psychology of science is like, sure, and it is in physics too, you know? Welcome to, uh, to progress in intellectual fields. But because it's heavily politicized, you're dealing with people, or the underlying causes of this, you're dealing with people who have things to gain from standards. Uh, large contracting organizations have interest in having standards that forward they, their way of doing business. And um, uh, individuals and small groups who operate in different ways aren't necessarily well enough funded to get into the same process and have the same kind of voice. You end up with um, a standards writing process that per perpetuates, uh, I think, the interests of a few groups. Now, you might disagree with my political analysis. The notion that there is a political analysis to go through for these kinds of things, anytime you have power and control in a field, you have a political analysis to do. What conclusions you draw are different, but you have a political analysis to do. So we have a, an interesting piece through the 1990s, certainly. You have this continuum between um, uh, unification and fragmentation. 
In the standards world, you had unification. People publicly, you go to the STAR conference, people are saying the same thing, not necessarily meaning the same thing, but mouthing the same words. In practice, watching what was going on in California, the practices and the attitudes were widely diverse. And the question that I had was, how do I find a voice to talk about the many different approaches that I'm actually seeing as I'm going from company to company and conference to conference? How do I get folks to recognize that when they're speaking, they're often talking past each other. They're not hearing what they're talking about. How do I give them a framework so that they can, to some better degree, interpret what they're hearing instead of just having it go by and they learn nothing from it? I came up with um, uh, a variety of ideas for how to characterize differences. Um, initially, I started talking about paradigms. Kuhn, in the structure of scientific revolutions, used paradigms in what's been counted as 35 different ways. And so everything that I said turned into something that was fundamentally ambiguous. I eventually gave up on that term. Uh, Kuhn wrote later that he thought he should give up on that term too. But uh, ultimately, uh, during the lessons learned process, we decided that we would characterize what we saw in terms of the concept of schools of thought. You can use different words, communities of practice, uh, um, scientific social networks. There's lots of terminology that's used. This is pretty widely studied across many fields. And um, it's, it's commonplace in certainly all social sciences. And I, I think of software testing as a social science. But in all social sciences, it's commonplace to have groups of a few hundred to a few thousand folks who espouse a very different viewpoint, analyze things in very different ways uh, from other folks. In um, strategic management, at the moment, there are 12 identified schools and uh, tremendous amounts of uh, debate among those. Are they going to stabilize at 12? I doubt it. Um, there, are, there are fundamental issues they haven't figured out yet, and people are trying to figure out how to make progress on that. So, um, I'm going to stop. There's other stuff that I can say later. Go for it. Okay. Thanks, Kim. Interesting stuff there. Um, so listening to you, I made a few notes. Um, you mentioned that I was, was uh, uh, grumpy about the way that uh, I was being addressed. Um, I'm actually over that. Uh, I was irritated at the point where people were making sport of trying to see who could strip the most uh, meat off of my back on Twitter. Uh, then I discovered this wonderful feature called blocking. And now I'm just not, I just don't, you know, I don't have a problem anymore. But, but my concern with it is that, that that kind of rhetoric, that kind of rhetorical terrorism, if you will, it shuts down the debate, right? Because I think most people will eventually get to where I am with it, which is I'm not having anything to do with this crap. I've got better things to do with my life and my emotional energy than, than have shouting matches on, on Twitter, right? Um, so some other, some other things that I, I wanted to point out, too. Um, I noticed in going through your notes that you had citations for Spilmer and Hambling's books on the ISTQB. I really, I mean, no offense to those fellows, but I mean, I think if you look at the, the, the authors of those books, they're actually not the major 
authors of the ISTQB syllabi and so forth. So to say that those books adequately capture what the ISTQB program and certification is about, I think, I think you, you, they're not as authoritative as they, as they might appear. And I think if you read some of the other books, you'd find that there actually is disagreement within the ISTQB community. For example, you mentioned standards. And there certainly are some people within the ISTQB community that are big on standards. Personally, I think that standards are a potentially useful source of interesting ideas sometimes, uh, but the, only, the few times I've seen anybody trying to actually adhere to say IEEE 829, my advice to them as a consultant has been please stop doing that because that's not working for you. That's wasting your time, you're over-documenting. Um, so, I think it's not so much that you, you mentioned an emphasis on specifications in the ISTQB program. It's not so much an emphasis on specifications as an emphasis on oracles, test oracles, which I know is something that gets talked about a lot amongst people who declare themselves to be context-driven. We could have a lot of interesting discussions about test oracles if we weren't so busy shouting at each other, right? But that the shouting, the shouting precludes the, the interesting conversations. Um, and uh, you know, you mentioned Agile too, which I think is interesting because um, Agile, um, Agile was very cleverly marketed. You mentioned marketing. There's certainly some very clever marketing of it. And interestingly enough, in a lot of cases, that marketing was pushed by the very same companies, training providers, consultancies that were making money out of ISTQB training. Um, and of course, one of the things that pushed Agile being successful as well was the certified Scrum Master and the associated certification programs. So, you know, if you're if you're saying that you, you've got an issue with certification, well, then it sort of seems like you'd have an issue with Agile as well because Agile has been pushed forward very much by by certification. Um, oh. Then the last point, yeah, um, not the world's most organized notes here. Um, you mentioned schools as being commonplace. And um, okay, I can accept that you know a whole lot more about this study of schools and different professions than I do. All I know is the study of what it's doing here in our profession. And I would say that right now, it's not working. It's not moving us forward. And so that gets back to the point that I made on my first slide of the trees judged by its fruit, right? The fruit of this concept right now is, to my mind, bringing us less forward advancement and clarity and more personal conflict. And we're definitely off into that fragmentation. I noticed this is an interesting example here, this Tower of Babel problem. Uh, just recently, it became very popular for some advocates of context-driven testing to talk about checking, which is always sort of an implicit sneer, uh, checking versus testing. You're not really testing, you're checking. Basically, that what they've done is just redefined two very common terms that go way back, verification and validation, and saying that if you're verifying against specifications, that's just checking and that's not important versus if you're validating that the system actually does what a user, customer, or stakeholder needs it to do, then that's real testing. To me, there's a place for both of those things. And to come up with a, a snarky term to direct at somebody who dares to actually, oh my God, test against requirements, what heresy, right? That's not, that's not helpful. I mean, I think we need to recognize that there are times when you do have written requirements and or user stories or whatever we want to call them, and we should 
be testing against those. So that's just an example of what, what I mean in terms of it's, it's not moving us forward. In some cases, it's moving us backward, or it's just moving us around in a circle, which, you know, is okay if you like merry-go-rounds. <laughs> <laughs> so back, back over to you, sir. Okay. Um, some of the things that Rex is uh, citing from my slides, I uh, handed Rex a draft of the slides a couple of days ago, and uh, the full set is, uh, I think, available. Um, there, are, there are 44 slides more than you're possibly going to see in the debate. <laughs> um, it's interesting with Agile, watching what some of us would characterize as the progression of the Borg. Uh, for those of you who remember Star Trek, the, the Borg is an empire <laughs> that basically assimilates everyone. And um, uh, I, I get to read blog posts these days from folks who say, I want my Agile back. This is, this is a, a common quote theme. Um, the the uh, version of Scrum that I'm seeing often practiced now looks a heck of a lot like uh, test then code, which I associate with Bill Hetzel and David Gelperin uh, back in the 1980s in the testing community. Um, uh, it, it doesn't feel very agile to me. When I compare that to the very edgy, extreme programming movement of the uh, turn of the century, it's just a very different approach. It's a, a different set of, I think, different set of principles. Um, there are certainly a bunch of folks who came out of that tradition who are still hanging on to it, rightly or wrongly, and feel as though what they're looking at that's marketed as agile today is a watering down, the same way that total quality management was watered down. Um, uh, that became group hugs and quality circles and started out as very intense humanistic statistical quality control. Um, Things as they get popular get watered down and they get um, clever marketing people find ways to drive divisions to sell their approach. And that's part of the challenge of fragmentation. Look at me, I'm special. In the United States of the 1990s and 2000s, uh, polarization is a great seller. Political parties do it very well, and they've modeled that for the rest of the country to follow, and several folks in several fields are following it. I hate it. Uh, there is a difference between division and schism. And uh, I, I have no disagreement with you when you say that some of the people, especially on Twitter, which is you know kind of the host for every shallow, you know, here's a 140-word jab. Um, uh, even people who are thoughtful off of Twitter seem to think they have permission to be jerks on Twitter. And, um, uh, and there's a lot of it, and it's unpleasant. Uh, it's not helpful. It, it, it isn't moving anybody forward except, I think, for some pocketbooks. But look past those folks. And I think what you're finding is that uh, many people are thinking critically. Critically critically doesn't necessarily mean destructively. Critically means, what am I looking at? What's the basis for this? What's the reasoning here? Who thinks this is a good idea and why? 
Who thinks this is a bad idea and why? What other ideas are out there? Who advocates for those ideas? Why do they think theirs are better? Uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, people told me that that kind of analysis basically didn't exist. Uh, that you either thought in a fairly standard way or you were off the map. The resistance that came when I tried to publish the first edition of Testing Computer Software all the way through the publication of the book and uh, finally getting my rights back from McGraw-Hill. The resistance through every piece of that process as, uh, as I used taboo words like exploratory testing was remarkable. Uh, it, it, it was, I was an isolated individual and um, uh, I kept meeting other isolated individuals who thought similar ways. It, it was astonishing that folks weren't, until they started to, gathering together and saying, look, this is what we collectively seem to believe. There is that horrible curve as you go to an extreme and you have to hit it and go, well, you know, you hit bottom, you bounce back. Um, uh, there is that horrible curve and some folks are hitting it. But as we bounce back from that, or where many people I think are today, there's a lot of insightful, critical thinking about um, how different people approach problems that I don't see any other way uh, than this to have, despite the costs that we're seeing, and I get to be a target of some of that too, despite the costs that we're seeing in places like Twitter and on blogs. It's annoying, it's a price, uh, but the notion of um, creating a forum for a, a free flow of critical discussion, I don't see a good alternative. I would tend to agree that there are some people out there that are doing exactly what you mentioned. So Ben Simo comes to mind, of a guy who is able to put forward interesting ideas, debate them, and at the same time be, be very respectful, and he obviously is doing exactly that. But I would say, though, that there is, I think if you look at it, a lot of uh, uh, prescriptive pronouncements, which are the opposite of, of critical thinking, to say, mm -hmm. under all circumstances, you should do this, um, and it happens under the the color of people who are self-proclaimed context-driven testers. And it's said, and then nobody from this same self-proclaimed school goes back and corrects it. Right? So that's a frustration that I have. It's just, it seems to me that part of critical thinking is if there are people that, that are in agreement about something, that they will tend to sort of police each other. I know we certainly do that within the ISTQB school, if you want to call it that, that we we, you know, we have very vigorous debates and arguments about things, and um, I mean, if you were in some of those working group meetings you'd have, you'd be like, wow, that's a pretty, pretty healthy debate there, um, and there are, there are such disagreements. Um, you know, it, I, I don't see any evidence of that happening within the context-driven community of people having debates back and forth, criticizing each other's ideas. There certainly have been such debates. Some of them have been extremely acrimonious. And uh, just as the debates that are internal to ISTQB don't get very visible outside, uh, some of the debates that you haven't seen existed anyway. In terms of uh, public uh, correcting, I think there have been a lot of public corrections. Uh, but the challenge with Twitter is, and generally the challenge with marketing, if somebody 
has a business model of being polarizing, then coming back to that person and saying, excuse me, you're being needlessly polarizing, sounds great, but do you have to say it you know, 4,000 <laughs> times every time they're needlessly polarizing? At a certain point, you say, okay, they've got the message. They don't like me anymore. Uh, they're not going to change how they speak. <laughs> I think I'll ignore them. And um, I think that several of us are looking at uh, uh, the extreme of a fragmented discussion and saying, that's farther than I'm interested in going. I've told people that. Now I need to get back to work. Because uh -huh. uh, ultimately, the going around in circles, let's all talk only about the basics of the field and not about the development of um, new techniques or new skills uh -huh. or the deepening of skills. I, every time we talk about um, the latest bad definition, we distract ourselves from moving forward. And uh, at some point, you have to do the real work of the field. The other stuff is uh, entertainment and marketing. So I think that there are many of us who said, no, I need to get back to work. This stuff is a distraction. It doesn't mean that we can avoid doing what I think of as very critical thinking about the social dynamics, but we don't have to do it in obnoxious ways. I'd buy that. Maybe it's time for questions. <laughs> think so. Scott, thank you. John. So it almost sounds like you two guys at the end of the, uh, I'll call it discussion slash debate, came back to almost some level of agreement. Um, my thought and question here is whether or not we call them schools and those kinds of things is kind of almost irrelevant to me, whether it's a strategy or a genre. I see those kinds of distinctions coming out of most uh, fields, both of science and music and art and literature, uh, whether or not the participants are aware that they're in a particular uh, genre of music uh, sometimes isn't that important. It's what the outside world sees as country music or rock and roll. Then there's a few people that cross back and forth between genres and, and uh, or schools and try and influence all of them. So for me, it's what do we do to make things move forward and progress? Uh, I, by the way, think Twitter is a terrible medium for any kind of uh, true discussion debate. I mean, 140 characters, you, you know, any complex idea doesn't fit in there. Uh, and so where do we take the, the debate and critical thought discussion? Uh, you know, how do we critique uh, the thoughts that are out there? I think, Kim, you know, the other fields like psychology, you mentioned, I forget the name of the university, people came there uh, from both sides and, and discussed in a uh, call it proper forum. Um, aside from conferences like this, do we have those forums in our industry? I mean, or do we need more of them? Whichever one wants to start first. You want to go? Sure. Um, 
I guess it, to, to respond to your opening statement, I, mean, I think there are things that Kim and I agree on. Um, I, I remain convinced until results prove otherwise that on the whole, this concept of schools of testing, whether, whether that was something that actually existed or not, but the whole, that the concept and the way that the concept has played out in practice in our profession has been a net negative. Uh, I don't blame Kem for that. I'm not saying shame on you for introducing the concept because obviously you threw it out there and you couldn't have predicted, okay, this, this is exactly what's going to, well, I assume you can't, but if you could predict those kind of things, you'd probably be doing stock trading, I would guess, and a whole lot richer than any of us in this room. If you can predict how a random idea thrown out into the public is going to turn out, that's quite a, quite a prediction. Uh, but I, I, I remain convinced that on the whole, it's been a negative influence so far, and that we'll be, we would be far better off if we spent our time trying to think collectively about what are the different strategies that are out there, which ones work, under what circumstances, what are the enablers, what are the risks, what are the disablers associated with the different strategies, and um, that that kind of changing the discussion to that, that sort of discussion, I think, would have a, a way of depersonalizing it, as I think you mentioned, the strategies are a depersonalized thing. So I still would prefer that we talk about strategies and, and move away from schools. Kim, did you want to add? Sure. <clears throat> um, you made a point about how there are people in, in the middle between schools, and that's a point that I, uh, I want to follow up on as uh, an empirical thing. One of the ways that people in, um, uh, especially the library sciences, study the formation and, and continuation of schools is through something called co-citation analysis. They look at who somebody reads and uh, whose work they talk about. And they notice that there are clusters of people who primarily pay attention to each other and uh, uh, turn into a, a feedback loop for each other and then there are other clusters who uh, primarily pay attention to their group. And when there's talk between these, it's often critical. Then you find uh, I, folks who sit in places where they write papers that take from each of the groups and they try to tie them together. Um, those folks often carry a lot of ideas and practices from one group to another. They're often uh, at the forefront of change. In, uh, in the groups. They're often the carriers of the new synthesis. Um, but uh, the, the people who are sitting on the edge of one group or unaffiliated, I, I know in the Twitter stream there's, there's a, a constant statement, you have to be in one of the four schools that's ridiculous. And empirically, it's, it's an unjustifiable generalization. It doesn't work that way. Um, uh, the notion, though, that, that you get some folks who finally get insight from increasingly well-developed points of view that are polished uh, by people comparing them and come up and say, this is another proposal that might work better than either of these, is, um, I think, how a lot of things that I've seen evolve, evolve. I, uh, I think the university environment fosters a lot of the kind of debate and discussion that, um, that you're wishing could happen. And one of the reasons why I left um, industrial practice 
to go back to university is that it's a better home for that kind of thing. I, uh, I have collegial, sometimes quite firm, discussions with people who I very, very firmly disagree with um, on a daily basis. And sometimes those turn into pretty deep theoretical debates. Um, and when I'm not doing it, our students are doing it. But we can do that, publish together, work together, uh, uh, go to parties together, and learn from each other together. There is some amount of that that I'm able to get in uh, professional practice as well. Um, uh, we founded the Lost uh, workshops, peer workshops, uh, partially with the goal of creating uh, forums where that kind of deeper discussion that compares views could happen. And uh, there are still some forums of that kind that go. Um, Rex, during that period, was somebody who very much walked back and forth across different schools. So he came to meetings on um, heuristic and exploratory test techniques and uh, felt at home there, just as I'm sure you were at meetings on uh, standards development and feeling just as home. Uh, the, the notion that Rex as a person must be pinned to a specific named school, or any person in this room must be pinned to a specific named school, I think is ludicrous. Um, uh, but the notion that you can be a contributor to that or heavily influenced by that, I think is, uh, is empirical. Watch what the person says and what they do, who they hang out with, and uh, which ideas they echo back. And you, you learn something about their perspective. We have another question over here. And not, I know Twitter has, is getting a bad rap here, but if we could keep <laughs> the answers to like a Twitter bite of about a minute so that we can get a few more questions, um, that would be great. Uh, Cam, I appreciate listening to you this morning because up until half an hour ago, I had no idea why this context-dependent school was telling me that I was full of crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm one who straddles the schools. Uh, I hated in the 90s when clowns told me that I had to do these best practices when clearly they were not best practices for the context that I was in. But nowadays I have the context people telling me I'm full of crap because maybe sometimes I think we ought to have written test cases or maybe sometimes we want to automate in a certain way. <laughs> Is there any way to keep these schools from becoming religions? Because that's what I see happening, that you've got the religion of context dependent, the religion of standards, etc. I, uh, Rex commented that I couldn't have known when I was um, suggesting that we name a school that we'd have the fragmenting impact that we had. That fragmentation is, is a normal situation. Go back a few hundred years, you'll see the same dynamic. Go to any other field today and you'll see some point in their history where they had the same dynamic. It's, it's a pendulum and it swings. Uh, it has swung to an annoying place. We don't all have to play on that swing. Uh, we can choose to, to uh, refuse to accept that a few extreme people's pronouncements define that point of view and uh, talk instead about what we think instead of what they want to tell us 
that we should pay them to tell us to think. I think, unfortunately, Kim, what we're seeing is that that pendulum swing is by no means uh, done, but is actually accelerating. It is. Uh, it is. So an example of that was that the ASTQB wanted to uh, participate as a sponsor, give money to the Association for Software Testing at their conference, and have done that in the past, but current leadership of the ASD, so allegedly the, the uh, vanguard of the context-driven school, got together and said, nope, you can't be here. Is that again, or this was a couple years ago? No, this is this year that this happened. Uh, oh, well. there, there was an issue a few years ago where, where my own company got uh, told that we couldn't sponsor because we had annoyed James Bach by by existing by breathing, I wasn't even, I wasn't even breathing there. I wasn't even actually physically there. I just annoyed him by giving money to the AST. So I think we see this continue to uh, continue to accelerate, and 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 there's no uh, there's no end in sight to what Jamie's talking about at, at this point to me. I think from a historical point of view, it's very interesting about the schools, but what I'm interested really in is your point of view, each, each individually, about the future of testing. Um, testing can be very frustrating for, for, and, and something wonderful for us practitioners, but, but how do we make it um, such that, that we are more successful more of the time and, and make it easier so, so we all can uh, go home and sleep on the weekends at, at our houses and, and take vacations and so forth. So, so what are your thoughts on the future of testing? I, I think we're dealing with a few different classes of problems. One of the class of problems is, um, is that especially in Europe and Asia, there are stunningly many people who were told that to get a job in the field, they had to get certified. They took courses that they didn't respect. They parroted things back on the exams that they didn't believe. They resented it. And uh, they're now getting folks who say, you were ripped off. You should be angry. And, um, and that is part of the marketing that's being done in the name of context-driven testing. And that uh, wave of anger, not everybody who takes those certifications feels that way. But if you're forced to do anything, you're probably more ready to be irritated about it than, uh, than not. And there are a lot of people who are irritated. And uh, those folks are going to be suckers for the extremist point of view. They're emotionally ready for it. And that's going to be part of the future of this field. And I'm sorry, but ISTQB is part of that problem. Well, I think if you look at surveys that the mm -hmm. ISTQB and the ASTQB have done, the overwhelming majority of people that have gone through the program or used the program in their companies are very satisfied with it. Uh, I'm certainly not going to say that, it, that it's perfect, that we have everything mm -hmm. figured out. Um, but. We, we are very much trying to stay in tune with the audience and with our stakeholders. If, if there are companies out there that are misusing the certification in some way, um, we, we can't stop that, right? I mean, it's, 
It's the same as I can't hold you responsible for some lame brain on Twitter making an obnoxious ass out of himself because you wrote seven principles of context-driven testing at the end of a book, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, as the ISTQB and the ASTQB, can't take responsibility for what everybody does with the syllabus, but we do try to, to course correct. Now, in terms of where the future's going, I don't think the ISTQB is trying to be the future, define the future, or we're, we're trying to support it. I mean, where I see things going is towards a, an actual form of, of engineering, a larger form of software engineering and testing existing within that. Uh, I, I look at other fields of engineering and how they got to where they are and how far away we are from that, and I think we're in for a very interesting hundred years before we're, <laughs> before we're at the point where people are routinely sleeping in their beds on weekends and not working long hours and so forth. Uh, you know, so I think eventually we get there. Eventually it gets like civil engineering where, you know, it's just not all that exciting typically to build a bridge when the upside of that is you get to sleep at home in your bed at night. The downside of that is that there's, you know, the basic laws of physics and civil engineering are all figured out, and so you don't get to be one of the people who figured them out. And one of the exciting things about those of us in this room is that for, we get to be part of how the profession gets defined. We get to be part of how that's all figured out. And um, we can either have fun and get along while we're doing that, or we can, uh, to quote the brilliant mind of Steve Martin, throw dog poop on each other's shoes. <laughs> Here's another question. Hi there. First, oh, sorry. I wanted to thank both of you for uh, speaking on this topic. Um, although you guys are getting dangerously close into the certification versus not certification debate. <laughs> so might want to be careful of that because that could probably take another couple of hours. What I want to ask, though, is, you know, categorization is inherently divisive. And the schools of thought provided a way to categorize ideas, practices, principles, etc. And personally, I find that kind of dichotomy is, is useful because those ideas, concepts, and principles typically have related benefits and pitfalls. So Rex, earlier you were speaking about you haven't seen much useful fruit come from the categorization of the schools of testing. Mm -hmm. I think that they do and that they help categorize these ideas, these co-related benefits and pitfalls. And I think that is tremendously beneficial to the industry because actually it enables you to do what your point was earlier, which is pick from the strategies that are best for the context in which you're operating, right? If you're from an academic environment or manufacturing or whatever, you're going to have different things that are important to you. So I find that that's at least a benefit of doing the categorization. Kind of want to get your thoughts on that, and as well as yours, uh, Kim. Thanks. So I'm not I'm not by any means opposed to categorizing things. Um, you know, I, and I think categorizing the different testing strategies is very useful because by categorizing, you can start to say these are enablers, disablers, risks, and, and opportunities associated with each strategy. Uh, and that can lead us to make smarter choices about uh, picking the right strategy in the right situation. My problem with the schools is that it's become more about identifying oneself as a person with a school as opposed to identifying situations in which certain uh, practices are likely to work better 
or worse. And I think that that, that, that way of looking at it is going to be a lot more helpful to us because, again, it, it, as Kim said, it does depersonalize things, and I think that allows us to step back from some of the emotional energy that's gotten all boiled up over the last 10, 15 years on this and get into what works and why and what situations and, and studying that and sharing ideas that way. So I think that um, the notion of strategic thinking is useful and I think that there is uh, a tremendous amount more attention paid to the analysis of techniques where does it work? Where does it not work? Why does it work? Why does it not work? Who does it work for and under what circumstances? I think that that discussion is much more uh, prevalent, present in uh, the testing community today than it was 15 years ago. And personally, I take some credit for that. I think that we created uh, a discussion that, that was very, very hard to have uh, um, uh, 20 years ago. And in my personal experience, actively discouraged. But um, I, I want to come back in terms of the future to a different piece. There is the political future of the profession. And I think we're on an interesting ride for you know, many years to come. Um, and then there's the technical future of the profession. Personally, I'm working on um, uh, how to train people more deeply in specific test techniques. How do we actually get better at things? One of the core differences that I see between testing and programming is that there's an enormous amount of support for skill development of programmers. All through uh, uh, university and practitioner training, getting better at programming, getting to be a master of programming, in terms of a master individual contributor who does these things really well, we don't have much of that in this field. We need to develop more of it. That's where I'm spending most of my time. That's not a school-related issue, but it's a fundamental for any kind of progress of, uh, of the overriding views. Similarly with test automation. Now that computers have gotten very fast, we can do numbers of tests that were inconceivable years ago. Years ago, Doug Hoffman ran a test with four billion, a test series with four billion automated tests on a supercomputer. People were amazed that it took him six minutes. And when I used to teach a course where I said, how long would this take? People talked about years to do that. We replicated that on a cheap little um, Lenovo computer that we got for 250 bucks at Office Depot. It took six minutes. Sorry, eight minutes, two minutes longer than, uh, than the supercomputer several years ago. There are things that we can, as a practical matter, do today in automation that were inconceivable before. There are optimizations based on how expensive it is to run tests that are obsolete with current equipment. That means we have an opportunity for a different vision of test automation. And um, we need to work on that. Part of that is political, but um, there are a lot of traditions which are the political part, but much of that is technical. We have uh, time for one more question. That's going to be Dan here. <clears throat> Hi, Cam and Rex. This is Dan Downing. I was introduced in the hallway earlier as the guru of performance testing, but I really reject that label. 
I'm just another tester who's been around performance testing and has learned a few things uh, in my tiny context. But I'm glad to hear that we didn't need uh, boxing gloves on your uh, fists <laughs> this morning, that really you guys are in violent agreement. Um, refreshing uh, to, to see that. Um, I've been around some of the strong personalities that were named and unnamed in today's uh, debate about schools and uh, context-driven testing. Uh, I have found them to be intelligent, um, have creative ideas, uh, obnoxious and, and rude. Uh, some, many of the adjectives that uh, both of you have uh, danced around here in your characterizations. And I, I'd like to suggest uh, to Mike Cooper's question about, so what is the future of testing, is that instead of um, debating uh, schools and paradigms and uh, fisticuffs and 140 character sound bites, which I totally ignore, uh, or um, block, as, as uh, both of you have mentioned, <laughs> that we instead take a page from your Lost-inspired, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know who Lost is, uh, Los Alamos workshop on software testing, I believe, Kim, that uh, you were uh, instrumental in introducing a few years back, uh, a page from that um, manifesto, if that's what we can call it, which is to instead uh, tell stories about our individual experiences doing a recent testing project. I would have loved to have heard, uh, Cam, one of your recent Silicon Valley experiences where something worked or didn't work. Uh, Rex, one of your recent consulting gigs uh, where that may have worked because I think I would have gained a lot more uh, in the understanding of, your, of, of that specific context and in the specifics of how you applied whatever principles or approaches uh, that, that happen to have worked in that uh, particular situation. So uh, I, I love the, the notion that the, the best way to learn is from somebody else's story in, uh, told in first uh, person uh, with the, all of the color and specifics and limitations of a single engagement. So I, I would like to become, uh, come to the next STPCon and hear you talk about that instead of the debate. You have Twitter time to answer. <laughs> so I would just say to, re to react to that, I mean, if you want to hear uh, me telling war stories, I do free webinars every month. Uh, they go on for 90 minutes, and there's a, a bunch of Q&A at the end and, you know, after the 60-minute presentation. So feel free. Um, I'm hap happy to do those. And I tend to agree, in general, that uh, you know, sharing anecdotes about things that work and things that don't work in specific situations is, uh, is very, uh, very useful, particularly in an environment where people are um, listening to those anecdotes and accepting, yes, this, this actually happened, and yes, this is meaningful, um, and what can I learn from it? Losts are inherently small group meetings because they also allow for detailed questioning of the speaker, which occasionally turns into discovery that the speaker didn't really have the experience, um, or uh, not the one that he's describing. Um, we still host, Rebecca Fiedler and I still host the workshop on teaching software testing, which is a lost meeting every uh, January in Florida. And uh, Doug Hoffman, I believe, is organizing the next Los Altos workshop in software testing, I think, lost 19, um, 
to focus on test oracles probably sometime in the fall. Um, I, I still think they're a fantastic way for sharing knowledge, but the problem is that bigger than 15 in a room destroys the meeting. So I don't know how to do it here. <laughs> I know we could go on all day talking about this, but we have a lot of sessions out there to get to. But I want to thank Ken and Rex. Will you give them a hand? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this STPCon Spring 2014 session recording. We hope you can join us for the next STPCon this November 3rd through 6th in Denver, Colorado. Learn more at softwaretestpro.com forward slash STPCon F14.